Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to take a listen to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at newer movies that are out in theaters, VOD, streaming services, whatever catches my interest and maybe I think that you might be interested in. You can check out the link for that at that website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of a three-part series looking at mutated underwater creatures that put people below them on the food chain. Last week I looked at 1978's Piranha. This week I'm going to look at the sequel to that film. Sort of a sequel anyway. It is called Piranha 2 The Spawning and it came out, well it depends on where you live, it came out as early as 1982 or 83 In the United States, it was released in 1983. It is an R-rated film. Just like the first one, it does have nudity, sexuality, gore, violence, and language. The runtime is an hour and 34 minutes, depending on the cut. That is another issue with the film. Many different cuts available. Trisha O'Neill, Lance Henriksen, Steve Marichuk, Ricky Paul Golden, who's credited as Ricky G. Paul in the movie, Ted Reichert, Leslie Graves, Carol Davis, and Connie Lynn Haddon are in the film. The director here is James Cameron, sort of, (laughs) and the screenplay credited to H.A. Milton. Now, Piranha 2, The Spawning, is a film that I've actually seen once. I rented a Laserdisc or something quite a long time ago, and I really despised the movie when I first saw it because I was really expecting something more from James Cameron. But, you know, I came to subsequently find out that he really didn't have full authorship on this film. As for how he got there, I will explain here by going back to the beginning. After 1978's Piranha, Roger Corman's New World Pictures, they planned a follow-up because it was very successful for them. But They couldn't get a lot of the creative crew back because Piranha screenwriter John Sayles and its director, Joe Dante, they had already moved on to do another film called The Howling. So they asked another producer, an independent producer named Martin B. Cohen, he's also a a story writer for Corman's Humanoids from the Deep, to come up with an original story idea. And Cohen, he hoped to score a deal with his idea, with United Artists to fund part of the estimated $1.5 million production budget in exchange for a foreign distribution deal. But the deal fell through, and that rendered Piranha 2 in production limbo with New World Pictures. Because the agreement that Corman had with the rights holders, Jeff Schechtman and Chaco Van Leeuwen, it really only held for the first picture— Sheckman and Chaco decided that they were going to shop around the sequel idea to others who might be interested and see if someone else could make it work. Enter international exploitation film producer Ovidio Asonidas. Asonidas had already produced, and he directed a Jaws knockoff before. You know, we talk about Piranha being a Jaws knockoff. He had made one as well before Piranha called Tentacles that came out in 1977. That was the first of a three-picture distribution deal that he had with Warner Brothers. Because Tentacles and Piranha were fairly closely linked in that they were both Jaws ripoffs, Warner asked Asonidas if he wanted to take over Piranha 2 for his third picture, which he said he would do if they would grant him final cut rights. Warner Brothers okayed this if they agreed to their demands, which was that he hire an American director 
and American actors and to make it for under $500,000 and if the story would include piranhas that attacked outside of the water. Asenidis was not keen on that last aspect, but he did consent to these stipulations and he approached Sheckman to work out a deal. Sheckman was pretty skeptical about Asenidis, but he had Warner Brothers backing, so you know that was enough clout to work with him. Sheckman and Chaco had already been in talks with Miller Drake to be the director. Now, like Joe Dante, Drake had come from the Roger Corman camp. He was working as a writer and a director. He did additional scenes for 1979 Screamers, and he was a second unit director on Alligator. Drake assigned the script to Charles Egley. He was an assistant director on Piranha. Egley liked to collaborate with his creative partner, Channing Gibson, so they were on board for that screenplay. Drake wanted the sequel to be specifically about Piranha's Dr. Hoke character, the one played by Kevin McCarthy. Although, you know, if you see Piranha, he dies during that film. But Drake thought that Kevin McCarthy could return if they had him as improbably surviving, scarred, mutilated. Drake had this idea for a story where Hoke is working on an abandoned oil rig, fending off flying piranhas here and there, invading the platform. Barbara Steele could also return as Dr. Mangers, and at some point, maybe during the climax, Hoke would kill Mangers by smashing her head into a fish tank. To get some of the original crew back on board, Drake asked Rob Botine, the production assistant for Piranha, to return, but Asenidas, he refused the choice of Botine. Drake was upset that Asenita stepped in here and refused that choice, so he brought it up during a meeting. Things got a little bit testy, and within a couple of days, Sheckman, he approached Miller Drake, and he told him Asenita did not like his attitude during that meeting, and Drake was fired. Now, James Cameron, he came into this. He happened to be working as a special effects technician and a model builder, and he was the second unit director at that time working for Roger Corman's Galaxy of Terror, and that's when he was approached by a couple of Italian producers who were on the set watching what was going on. They were impressed by Cameron's handiwork. He was making mealworms move like maggots. He used a jolt of electricity to get them to dance on the uh, severed arm that they were supposed to be on, and one of these Italians introduced himself as Ovidio Asenita and he was looking for somebody with effects expertise for a movie he was working on. So he invited James Cameron out to lunch, and that's when Asenidas talked about his Piranha 2 project, and he asked Cameron's interest in coming aboard and doing some effects work. Asenidas, at that time, he offered Cameron $10,000, half of it up front for not the effects supervisor, though, because Drake had just gotten fired. He offered him right up to the vacant director's chair. Something that Cameron had really been wanting to do. So, arriving in Asenidis' office in Rome, James Cameron had very little time to prepare. He immediately read the script by Charles Agley, who had subsequently changed his credit to the pseudonym of H.A. Milton. Hamilton, H.A. Milton, is Agley's middle name, by the way. But Cameron felt that that script needed some revising. He envisioned that Piranha 2 should be a tongue-in-cheek spoof, a lot like the first film. For instance, one thing that Cameron thought of was that he could have a, a character walking down the street, and then that person would encounter a, a cloud of flying piranhas, and then all that remains of that person is a skeleton. However, because there wasn't really a lot of time, and there was nobody available at that time to pass the writing chores to, Cameron decided that he was going to do a minor polish, he would give the characters more personality, and he would inject a few moments of suspense throughout the picture. 
Now, the story does not really connect with the first piranha, except for there is this reference to the fish being used as bioweapons for a top-secret U.S. Army experiment. And those experiments continued beyond the first film into crossbreeding these piranhas with grunions and flying fish to try to make them more dangerous, not only in the water, but in the air. A ship gets sunk, and a container of their eggs breaks open in this area near Club Elysium, which is this posh resort in Jamaica, They're on the verge of their annual fish fry beach festival, and that's when the grunions are supposed to hatch and walk upon the shore. And that's where Anne, this marine biologist, works as a scuba instructor, and Anne's separated husband, Steve, is a cop in the seaside town. Now, Steve's a little jealous when Anne enters into a fling with a mysterious resort resident named Tyler Sherman, who has much more of a backstory to the piranha that are out and about in the ocean. And then when human bodies are found in a gruesome, half-eaten state, they all begin to suspect that the summer frolickers that are there on the beach are in danger. But, of course, too bad Club Elysium is not going to shut down the highly attended Fish Fry Festival because the fish are going to be eating the humans there instead of the other way around. Now, Asinidis, he took the lead in casting Piranha 2. He recommended, as the police chief, an actor named Lance Henriksen. Henriksen was somebody that Asinidis had cast for his 1979 film called The Visitor. He showed Cameron The Visitor, and Cameron, after he screened it, he agreed Henriksen was going to work perfectly. Now, there was no stunt budget for Piranha 2, so they sought very fit actors who were willing to do their own swimming, their own stunts. But that still proved pretty dangerous on his first day on the shoot. Henriksen did not know how to stop the boat, and he ran into the dock. And then later on in the shoot, he broke a hand during a helicopter jump. And well, he went to the local hospital, but it was too sketchy to have them work on him. So he finished the shoot with a broken hand to avoid delaying the production. Now, the main character is named Anne Kimbrough. Kimbrough happens to be the married name of Roger Corman's story supervisor, Francis Dole, but obviously Akeley worked that name into the film script as kind of an homage, I suppose. As far as the casting of Anne Kimbrough, they initially had Jane Badler. Badler was playing Natalie on the soap opera at that time called The Doctors. She would also be known to people who are really into 80s TV She's the one who played the evil Diana in the popular sci-fi miniseries called V. But NBC canceled those plans because of scheduling conflicts with the doctors, so they instead found another TV actress named Trisha O'Neill to take the main role. Now Cameron, proceeding forward, he knew that the film was pretty trashy, but the gig was going to allow him into the Directors Guild of America, so he was highly anticipating doing something with it. And after two weeks of fine-tuning the script and drawing up all the storyboards, Cameron arrived at Ocho Rios in Jamaica for the actual shoot, and that's where he had a very rude awakening. Asinidis had drastically reduced the budget from its initial $500,000 to below $300,000, and some estimates run as low as $150,000 for the budget. The crew were all there, but they had done almost no prep work at all. They didn't scout any locations. None of them really spoke any English, so Cameron was at a loss really as to what to do. Cameron obviously felt that these preparations were inadequate, so he nearly walked away at that point. But Asinidis, he convinced him he should stay. He should fix things to his satisfaction. He would have his backing, at least at that time. Although, obviously, Piranha 2 would be a Z-grade exploitation film, Cameron still seemed dedicated to make something out of nothing with it. 
Now, while the rest of the crew were partying every night in Jamaica, Cameron was spending his evenings working in his hotel room or out in the parking lot. The rubber piranhas that he was given looked really terrible, so that required Cameron to do double duty yet again as an art designer to make them presentable enough to appear on the camera, despite having really no budget to make it work. He also created prop boats and miniatures to save on time and costs later. And during this period, Cameron really only got about three hours of sleep every night. So it was really taking its toll on Cameron. On top of this, Cameron also was taking a crash course on learning enough Italian commands to be able to direct his crew on what was necessary. Now, because no locations had yet been scouted, Cameron went out and he hired a driver to drive him around Jamaica looking for the right places to shoot segments of his film. The autopsy scene, for instance, that was shot in a real morgue where the actors had to work around real dead bodies and blood and guts everywhere. Cameron had, in one particular scene, had to mop up some of the viscera that spilled on the location to set up the following sequence. Kind of gory there, but Cameron really was showing his dedication there. Now, if you know Cameron's history, you know that he worked with Lance Henriksen quite a bit during the 1980s. Now, this is actually where Lance Henriksen and James Cameron, they met for the first time. They formed an instant friendship because Henriksen, he was really impressed by Cameron's dedication, his determination, and it became infectious. In fact, the costumes that were provided were substandard and they barely fit. Cameron had his cast wear their own clothes, which were adequate, but Henriksen didn't think that he should really walk around like a plainclothes cop. It didn't quite make sense. So while they were having coffee out at a Jamaican bar, they spied this waiter who had this outfit on. It was, he had a pair of blue chinos with a stripe down the side, and he had this white shirt with epaulets that Henriksen thought that he could refit to look like a cop's outfit. So he paid the waiter, who happened to be about the same size as him, $75 for his wardrobe to use in the film. Now, on the shirt, because he didn't have a badge, Henriksen wore a Save the Whales pin that he had. He wore it upside down because it kind of looked like a badge in that way, and Guns were outlawed on the set, so he instead carved a piece of wood to look like the butt of a gun while it was in the holster. So the cop's uniform was pretty much set there. Now, most of the underwater action takes place at Grand Cayman Island. That's where Cameron had some experience doing some diving, and he had a comfort level there. The Mallard Beach Hyatt, at the time, it was the resort that was used as Club Elysium, and the interior scenes would later be done at a studio in Rome. Now, in Cameron's mind... The difficulty of making this film was not just the budget. The biggest obstacle to making this a quality picture was the consummate micromanaging by Ovidio Asinidis. Asinidis refused to show Cameron, or really anybody else, the dailies to see what was working and what was not to make adjustments as necessary. Dailies were immediately sent to New York for processing, and only Asinidis had viewed them. The only feedback that Cameron would get on what was shot was that it was no good, and that really shook his confidence. In addition, Asinidis and his assistants were regularly handing down script revisions that featured lengthy monologues for the actors to have to learn, and they had to recite within a very short period. And to get him to comply, they extorted Cameron. They used threats or they used bribes of additional props that he required to complete the film. He wanted to make a quality picture, so in order to get him to play ball, he would have to meet their demands. Now, in Asinidis's mind, the problem with the film was not himself, but Cameron. Cameron wanted to make a great film out of what was supposed to be only this blood and babes exploitation flick. He was thinking too high. He was a perfectionist to the detriment of the budget. Asinidis argued with Cameron constantly about his ideas to try to make something more than what was ever required. 
He wanted to fire Cameron early on, but he really couldn't shoot the underwater sequences that Cameron, who happened to be an experienced diver, had set up, so he let him stay until those were completed. And then one day, Asinidis requested that Cameron shoot a close-up of Carol Davis, this British actress and a penthouse pet. Her voice gets dubbed in the film, presumably to meet the contractual requirement of American actors. Cameron, instead of shooting that close-up, he spent the day's shoot doing all kinds of other things, and he never captured that shot, so Asinidis would spend the next day doing that. And at that point, Asinidis told Cameron he was no longer necessary. He was basically fired. Asinidis was going to shoot the additional footage. He was going to make the film sexier and gorier and edit all that footage into what Cameron had already shot. Now, Cameron was allowed to stick around if he wanted to. He could help as a second unit director or continue to do effects if he wanted to, but instead, he decided to head back to the United States to lick his wounds. Now, for a spell, Cameron considered that directing features may not actually be his calling. Maybe he should stick to being a technician or become a screenwriter. He was flat broke. He was sleeping on a friend's couch in Pomona, California. He was feeling depressed. He was feeling alienated. And after a couple of months of anxiety, Cameron decided he was going to fight for his film. He bought a one-way ticket to Rome, which was really all he could afford, and he confronted Asinidis in his office about his firing. He wanted to show him that he could actually make a good film out of the footage. Things got a little bit heated. The tension grew thick, so thick that Asinidis, he reached for a letter opener and he clenched it in case things escalated into something physical. Now, when tempers actually cooled, Asinidis showed Cameron some of the rough cut footage of the film. And there, Cameron saw that his footage actually worked perfectly fine. It was much better than the lurid stuff that Asinidis had shot and inserted into the work. Cameron grew convinced that he was fired not because he was incompetent, but because Asinidis wanted to direct the feature himself. He later speculated, based on his track record, that Asinidis regularly used American names to get financing and then accused these inexperienced directors that he brought on board of incompetency, and then he would finish the films himself. Now, upset at the current state of his film, Cameron remembered the code to get into Asinidis' office building, and he waved to the security people as he walked in the building. They likely thought he was still working for Asinidis, so they let him in. Once inside, he used a credit card to break into the lab, and he sifted through the film cans labeled in Italian, and he taught himself how to use the equipment to recut the footage that he found. And night after night, he worked on this film, trying to make the best movie that he could. He removed Asinidis' injected sex and gore, and he reduced instances where we see the piranha, at least until the end, kind of like Jaws in that way. He finally got caught. He was reported to Asinidis. Asinidis demanded Cameron just butt out or he would have to face the authorities. Cameron made his own threat back. He said he was going to inform Warner Brothers as to what Asinidis was doing with the film. But without funds to return back to the States, Cameron still had to stick around until the Rome premiere to finally be paid his remaining $5,000. Flat broke during that time, he took to stealing food that was left in front of the guest rooms at his boarding house to sustain himself. He was feeling weak, he was emaciated, he was depressed, and eventually he caught the flu, and it was so bad that he experienced vivid fever dreams during that time. But one of them proved to be very prophetic. It would be the most influential dream of his life, in fact, that of a battered metallic robot who's dragging himself out of a raging fire. He's using kitchen knives to continue his attack on this injured girl who could not move. As he waited for funds, he started to write up around that dream a 45-page treatment, and that would become his very next picture, a movie that you all know called The Terminator. 
Now, Asinidis untangled some of what Cameron had done during that editing phase. Not all of it. Some of Cameron's vision can be said to be in the picture. The Asinidis version with extra nudity and the gore was handed to Warner Brothers by May of 1982 for worldwide distribution. Cameron had requested his name be taken off the finished product, but Asinidis, he really wouldn't and he really couldn't do it because the contract with distributors was not going to allow for a Greco-Italian name like Ovidio Asinidis to be attached. That was not part of the contractual deal. So Piranha 2 came out in other parts of the world before the United States first. In August of 1982, it was released in Italy, and then it rolled out to other places, including Australia and Germany in 1983. It was released in some parts of the world, including the UK, as Piranha 2 Flying Killers. It did get a title change to Piranha 2 The Spawning for its American release. Now, the quality of the film was in such bad shape that Warner Brothers did not want to touch it for distributing in the United States in the end. But because his name and reputation were on the line, Cameron agreed that he would re-edit what was there for a domestic distribution, and he would trim out about 10 minutes of the film that he thought didn't work, and he added some additional shots like these Prana POV special effects, and he had to rescore the film in order to fit with what was going on with his edit. This wasn't really as ideal as the director's cut he had tried to make, but it was not as bad as what he thought Asinidis had done with the film. So it took a while for a distribution deal to get secured. Columbia Pictures consented eventually to finally do it. And upon release in the United States, it still failed to gain a lot of traction. It didn't take off the way the first film did. It really was relegated to smaller theaters, drive-ins for its showings, places that showed a lot of exploitation films. Now, as for the overall quality, Piranha 2, you know, it is typical exploitation. It's merely an excuse to show people in revealing swimwear. It's mixed with a lot of gore. I guess if you're looking for that sort of thing, and a lot of people were at the time and still continue to be to this day, you know, there is a few attempts at humor here. A lot of its laugh come at serious moments, especially when we see actors holding obviously fake winged fish to their necks to try to simulate a gory killing. You know, in many 80s horror movies, promiscuous characters were the victims, and I guess that's kind of like the double meaning for the subtitle of the spawning. It's really the humans doing a lot of the spawning in this film. People who are jerks, they will become targets for the fish wrath. Unfortunately, like a lot of these 80s movies, black characters tended to receive some of the most vicious of the attacks, even though they did nothing to deserve their fate like the other characters. I do think that the lead performers acquit themselves well, relatively, you know, for this kind of movie. Quite a number of the small roles are really caricatures that play for very dumb laughs. Cameron did sour on his experience with Piranha 2. He's largely disowned it, but he kind of tongue-in-cheek calls it the best flying Piranha film ever made. But he does credit his experience with Piranha 2 for preparing him for a lot of his films to come. You know, if you look at Anne Kimbrough in this film, she's like the motherly warrior type that he would use in movies like Aliens and T2. And Tyler, he's kind of a precursor to Burke. He's kind of a, a smarmy company man who unleashes this ultimate killing organism into the world. And Piranha 2 also foretells this passion that Cameron has for making films in and underwater, too. Not only The Abyss and Titanic, but he also did documentaries like Ghosts of the Abyss and Aliens of the Deep. The strained relationship angle is also very reminiscent to what he would do for Bud and Lindsay in The Abyss. And the dedication to working on the mutant fish also helped him to design the facehuggers 
for use in Aliens. Now, those who worked on the film would get dubious homage as character names in future Cameron efforts. Chaco Van Leeuwen inspired the character named Van Leeuwen, Paul Van Leeuwen, who questions Ripley's rationale for blowing up the Nostromo in Aliens. Miller Drake, I guess maybe that was the homage for Private Drake, in Aliens as well. Cameron continued to find ways to include Lance Henriksen in his next few films, including, well, he had written the part of the Terminator for the Terminator with him in mind, although that would change later, obviously. Henriksen would still play a supporting role as a cop yet again. This time with wardrobe, he didn't have to buy off a waiter. Expert diver Captain Kid Brewer Jr., he happened to be the first victim in Piranha 2. He became friends with Cameron during the shoot because they had a, a shared interest in diving, and he would work again with him several years later for the underwater adventure The Abyss before he passed away shortly afterward. Miller Drake, he was the first director on Piranha 2. He also would work for Cameron directly on The Abyss, and then Terminator 2, and then True Lies. And the screenwriter, Charles Chick Egley, would go on to produce the popular 80s TV show called Moonlighting, as well as executive produce popular TV shows including NYPD Blue and Dexter and The Walking Dead. And he would join forces with Cameron once again in 2000 with Dark Angel for television, as well as co-writing the story for Terminator Dark Fate in 2019. So really, if you're a Cameron file, you got to go back and watch kind of the seed that all of this exploded into. Back with Piranha 2, it's hard to believe, even though he was fired at some point during the production, that so much carried with him throughout the rest of his career that we have come to appreciate from James Cameron. Now, Piranha 2, I will not say, is a good film. It definitely is a schlocky film, but it's also not as bad as I seem to recollect. A lot of the underwater footage is actually very well done. Some of it is edited well together. You can pretty much tell if you've watched a lot of Cameron films which parts that he really directed and which parts he didn't just by observation, and the parts that he did are objectively not that bad. So, you know, this movie does hit its groove from time to time, on top of that, though, it really is dumb schlock. It's not very well put together. The characters are kind of silly. The attempts at humor are really bad. So this is pretty much a bad movie that has its moments for people who you know don't mind a film called Piranha 2 The Spawning. If you're expecting something bad going in there, you're going to get that, but it's better than what you probably think. But you know, if you're watching this thinking this is going to be another great Cameron film, like the Terminator films or Aliens or... Avatar or Titanic or anything like that is definitely far, far, far from that level. So I'm going to generously give Piranha 2 The Spawning two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that I do think that it had something lacking that keeps it from being a good film. And that really what it's lacking here is a consistent vision. Obviously, what James Cameron tried to make of this film and what Ovidio Asinidis were trying to make were completely on different sides of the spectrum. And really, it's kind of a jarring experience trying to merge these two visions together, and the budget didn't really allow for anything that was going to be very plausible to appear on the screen. So, two stars out of four. Now, if you're a fan of this film, you should know that it really was not going to end here. You would think that it would. It wasn't really a huge hit, and there wasn't a lot of creative interest in continuing, but back in 1989, there was a third entry in the series entitled Piranha 3, and that had gotten underway, and it was going to feature director Joseph Zito. They had a cast that they hoped to bring on, Daryl Hannah, Peter Coyote. Donald Pleasance was going to play an evil scientist in this film. The subtitle at one point was going to be called The Crawling Menace because the fish were not going to be flying, but they would be walking on land. So it never really quite got off the ground. A couple years later, in 1991, Ovidio Asinidas, he returned to the franchise, and he secured a deal with Yoram Globus of Canon Films, 
He had another venture called Melrose Entertainment, and he was going to make Piranha 3 for them. Asinitas intended to write and direct under his pseudonym, Oliver Hellman, and the setting was going to be Cape Town in South Africa, but it dissolved when Melrose Entertainment went bankrupt shortly afterward. Now, after the announcement of Piranha 3D by Alexander Aja, Asinitas attempted again to try to make his own quickie film in 2008 with this movie called Piranha 3, The Invisible Menace. It was going to be made by KOA Films very cheaply. It was going to be set in a ski resort, and the Piranha were going to be able to alter their appearance. They could blend in unseen into the background around them. I guess that's a way to get around having to construct many Piranha. But Asinitas could not get a workable script off the ground before the release of Piranha 3D in theaters in 2010, so that pretty much fizzled it out for that. So the franchise did not continue with any of the original talent, if you want to call them that, from Asinitas' take, but it did continue on its own as Piranha 3D and Piranha 3 Double D in 2010 and 2012. So I guess you can kind of check those out if you're interested in just continuing Piranha films. But thankfully, I don't necessarily have to watch any more Piranha films for this particular podcast because I'm pretty much piranha'd out at this point. Now, for next week, I'm going to go back to the Roger Corman films once again, one of his produced films for New World. It is from 1980, and I mentioned it toward the beginning of this review. It is Humanoids from the Deep. It is also called Monster, I suppose, if you watched it in certain parts of the world from 1980 and that will be on the next episode so check that out if you haven't seen it already if you have your own thoughts on the piranha films that you want to impart to me you can find my contact information at my website that's at quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net links to my twitter feed facebook page instagram however you want to get in touch with me email i think is the best way you can find the contact information at quipster.net until next time thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.